This is the Dungeon Master's Handbook. Hello, welcome to another episode of A Dungeon Master's Handbook. I'm Michael Shorten, Chicago is. Thanks for joining. In this episode, I'm going to answer a question about magic from Goblin's Henchman, a listener who sent in this question a couple of weeks ago, and I have gotten some time to answer it. I really enjoyed answering this question, as you'll find out later. I originally intended this episode to be a bonus episode with a number of different topics, but my answer ended up going for so long that I ran into my kind of self-imposed 20-25 minute limit. So I'm going to save some of the other segments that I recorded for a later episode. And with that, let's see what Goblin's Henchman wants to know about Advanced Dungeons & Dragons and Magic. Hi Mike, it's Goblin's Henchman here. Just got a quick question for you about rules as written. Um, I know you're doing this series on combat, but uh, this is a slightly different direction. Obviously, when you're finished wrapping that up and fancy a different challenge, um, what I always would like to know is, well, I suppose actually I'll, I'll follow. <laughs> I'll ask my question. So the question is this: um, when when a magic user say finds a rival spell book and they have spells in them above and below their pay grade, as it were. Um, what's the deal rules is written about getting those spells into your spell book? So um, Do you need read magic? Do you need write magic? Um, obviously, you've got your min and max number of spells and your percent to learn spells You know what I really like to do is have that broken down because invariably when I've heard people talk about that they skip a step <laughs> It bugs me um, So, you know that that's something I would like to know about and actually why not I'm gonna ask my second question the other thing that I've never always sort of slightly wondered about is um, magic resistance when's that come in really because obviously I can imagine like a charm spell that makes makes sense you you're trying to resist the magic but what about a fireball because that's you know that's a flaming ball of of uh, destruction is it is it is that also resist mag uh, magic resistance um, and obviously, uh, when I say rules as written, I mean AD&D. Okay, thanks, Mike. I'm wishing you the best in 2020. And uh, thank you for any input you can give me on those two issues. Cheers. Bye. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed these questions because they forced me to open the books and dig into it a little bit. Uh, this is actually something that I've house ruled a little bit on, so uh, it gave me a chance to dive back into the rules as written so that I could see where I came from. So I'm going to answer the second question first about magical resistance and its nature. So magical resistance is actually defined in the Monster Manual on page five and I'm just going to read a couple of sentences from it. Magical resistance indicates the percentage chance of any spell absolutely failing in the monster's presence. And then it goes on to talk about the percentages being affected and assumptions of the caster level 
And then it says, even if a spell does take effect on a magic-resistant creature, the creature is entitled to normal saving throws. Note also that the magic resistance of a creature has an effect on certain existing spells such as Hold Portal, which indicates the probability of the magic resistance shattering the existing spell. So, a couple of words kind of jumped out there. Um, the monster's presence and um, the, uh, the, the idea of magic resistance shattering the existing spell. And how it would affect a fireball is a little different than a saving throw. So in my mind, a saving throw indicates luck or the ability to put yourself into a position where you're not affected. So we'll take an easy example, poison. So if you read the section on saving throws, it makes a point of saying, you know, a saving throw represents perhaps you were lucky and you twisted your arm or leg at the last second and the serpent's fangs didn't cause enough of a wound that the poison was injected into your system. Thus, the saving throw is, is like a luck throw, if you will. And so here, if you were casting a fireball, the idea that if you roll your saving throw against a fireball, you only take half damage, is that you were able to somehow at the last minute throw yourself into such a position that the fireball's full effect didn't hit you. Um, generally, I read that as you threw yourself behind the poor sap who uh, failed their saving throw. They took the brunt of it and you just took the, the little bit that they didn't get hit with. But Magic resistance is something intrinsic to the creature. And, and if you look here through um, the uh, player's handbook, magic resistance isn't all that common. Um, you know, I, I just flipped, say, to page 96, which is the T. The treant has a magic resistance of standard, meaning that they just get what everyone else gets, a saving throw. Um, troglodyte is standard. The Triton, the Triton is 90%. Tritons are rumored to be creatures from the elemental plane of water. You know, the Troll is standard magic resistance. Um, the Turtle is standard magical resistance. Um, you know, and, and, and so to me, magic resistance is something about the creature itself. Uh, you know, we think of vampires and dragons typically or some of the higher undead as having magical resistance. And to me, that represents something about the creature itself that whatever it is that powers magic is doesn't affect that creature or is somehow warped or twisted by that creature so that the effect of the spell may not have the same effect that it would on, say, an ordinary. So if we take here the Triton being, you know, a creature from the elemental plane of water, so perhaps the fact that they would be here in our own, you know, uh, our own primary plane of existence, um, they're so different that our spells that come from here don't necessarily affect tritons in the same way. So your fireball, 
for example, it's not that the fireball is somehow deflected or absorbed, but it's just that by its very nature, the spell itself doesn't affect that creature nearly as much as, say, other things might. And, and that's generally the way I, I look at it after reading the book, and I think in the back of my head that's the way I've always thought about it. So I hope that helps uh, and explain a little bit about magical resistance and how it works. Um, and if you have any more questions about that, let me know. So let's talk about copying spells. I loved this question because this sent me on an hour-long research through all three of the core books. Now, I have to make a confession here. I do not use Unearth Arcana. Part of that is um, I like the base game. And most of the house rules that I have are just little tweaks or things that I said, oh, that's neat. That addresses an issue that I have. And I've went on with it. Now, I have a feeling that maybe a lot of these are based on blog posts or things that I thought were really cool. And maybe they themselves have some sort of, uh, you know, some sort of a history with Unearthed Arcana themselves. I don't know. I have the book. I've never actually read it. Uh, maybe that'll be a project for a future day to look through. I've just heard enough things about it that it's a campaign buster and it, it's, you know, the beginning of the slide into the craziness of, of other, uh, you know, like the splat books and whatever. I've just never given it much thought. So when you look through the core three books of first edition AD&D, one thing becomes really clear. The campaigns that Gary had in mind, magic was supposed to be rare in terms of magical spells. Apparently you could find a magic ring or a magic sword hanging off of every tree, but actually getting spells was something quite different. And in looking at the rules, and I'm looking, talking mainly about a certain section in the Dungeon Master's Guide, which is on page 39, it's apparent that his idea was primarily player characters would trade spells among each other, or you would use scrolls that you had found to gain new spells. But he is very vague to non-existent about how to actually copy those spells into your books. There's a couple of things that I'd like to point out that I found. Um, one is the concept of the spell of right, and that is a first level spell found in the player's handbook on page 69. And the idea is that you've somehow obtained a spell that you absolutely cannot understand, whether because of level restrictions, your first level and you found a spell scroll for a third level spell, you're not going to be able to understand it. Or for whatever reason, you perhaps failed your role to understand the spell. Right allows you to copy that spell into your book. And the way it reads, if I turn to that section on page 69, is it talks about 
you being in a trance and uh, you know you don't know what you've done there's the possibility of it failing it takes an hour per uh, level to transcribe in this fashion in addition you need a fine ink composed of rare substances minimum cost 200 gold pieces per bottle if available at all without manufacture by the magic user so that kind of gives you the first idea that there's some cost imposed as well as that you would be acquiring spells perhaps from sources that you couldn't yet deal with because if you flip over to the dungeon master's guide where it talks about the acquisition of spells it goes in a great length talking about how you can trade with your friends and rules about how you might possibly negotiate with NPCs to get their spells, but it says absolutely nothing about the actual copying itself. And I confirm this by doing some online research on the Dragon's Foot Forum. That's a place that I like to go to when I want to know what other people think about AD&D and the interpretation of rules. I've found that over the years, it's a really good place to read a lot of opinions and come up with my own. So that was the first little bit. But then I flip to a section of the rules that talks about creating scrolls. Because in my mind, creating a scroll is probably going to be similar as to create as to copying a spell in a book. Thinking that perhaps I would have some guidance there. And there is a little bit of guidance here. It goes into some length talking about the cost of the uh, paper that you would write the scroll on. And it also talks about um, how long it would take and what you would need to do in order to do it. Um, preparation requires one full day for each level of the spell being scribed on the scroll. So a first level spell takes one day, a second level spell takes two days, and so on. And you do it without interruption. The one thing that it really doesn't cover is cost. What would it cost for the ink? What would it cost for any other materials? And there's not a lot of guidance on that. So if you go back to the player's handbook and you read the uh, description on Read Magic, there's not a lot there as well, aside from talking about that this allows you to be able to read spells and whatnot from things that you acquire. So if we flip through the player's handbook, and I am skipping around here a lot, just like my thoughts were, um, things such as um, looking for the cost of the spell book in ink, and I not miscellaneous equipment. I'm not really seeing a lot here for that either. So whatever, for whatever reason, Gary didn't apply a lot of information. But I go back to a source that's a little bit older than that for how I handle both scribing into 
uh, books and scribing into scrolls. And that is to Holmes Basic. And in Holmes Basic, it gives pretty much everyone the ability to create scrolls. The idea is that it costs a hundred gold pieces per level of the spell to create the scroll and it takes a certain amount of time and that time escapes me although I have a feeling it is a day per level of the spell. That is what I do in my AD&D campaign. If a spellcaster wishes to copy a spell they would first use read magic to ascertain the spell. So magic user has found a spell book having obtained it through a hard and perilous adventure. They would cast read magic. Read magic lasts, I want to say, a certain number of turns. You hear me flipping through the book. Two rounds per level. So, you know, I would say that um, uh, the you could probably read a spell. I would probably count that by segments. Yes, I would do the math for the case of copying. Um, and, and I'm not going to get into that now, but basically there, my formula would be to count the segments for casting time, assume that that's reading time, and do the math there to figuring out how many rounds uh, Read Magic is going to last. So they've read the spell. Now, can they understand it or not? If they don't wish to attempt to understand it, then um, if it's in a scroll, then obviously they've read it, they can cast it without truly understanding it. But to be able to copy it in your book, you need to understand it, or you would need to use the right spell. So let's say they are going to attempt to understand it. Then I would use the rules as written for understanding a spell based on their intelligence, um, assuming that they do understand it and they wish to copy it into their book, then they will supply a spell book of which um, I don't have the price off of the top of my head, but spell books are fairly expensive in my campaign. I believe on the order of 50 or 100 gold pieces. And it only holds um, the number of spells per level. So my magic users have to have a book for first level, they have to have a book for second level, and so on. Now from that I allow them to create a traveling spell book. We can get into that later. But the actual mechanism I stole from Holmes, which is they would uh, pay up a hundred gold pieces per level of the spell that they're going to transcribe, and it would take them some time to do it. So. This actually happened in my campaign where two of my spellcasters were playing. They wished to trade spells. So they did a lot of rolling to see if they could understand the other spells. They then spent a lot of money to actually transcribe them and took a lot of time to do it. So Goblin's Henchman, this all is to say, I house ruled what is not in a D&D, &D, but I do follow that pattern. You have to read magic in order to be able to have an idea of what's going on with it. Um, 
you then either use the understanding percentage to translate it to your book or you would use the right spell to tran to copy it over for use later perhaps by uh you know if you've obtained a third level spell as a first level magic user you've used the right spell in order to be able to copy it over and then when you are able to understand third level spells which is at of course fourth level you would then be able to uh, i think it's fourth level Anyway, you would then be able to uh, attempt to understand it at that point. And now that I'm going to check myself, magic users, dun, dun, dun. yes, oh no, fifth level is when you get to obtain third level spells. That was off. Anyway, great questions. Thank you very much for that. All right, as I mentioned before, I had some other topics to talk about, but this episode has gone long enough, so I'm going to close it for now. Thanks a lot, Goblin's Henchman, for sending in that question. And like always, if you're interested in asking questions, please feel free to drop me an email or send me a message of some sort, whether by voicemail or by anchor. I've put the links in the show notes. That's it. Until next time, game on.